So in other words, Mike, we we as preachers, as expositors, should never study to prepare a sermon. Never study to prepare a sermon. We are studying to know God. We, we are studying to grow in Christ. We are studying to be matured in Christ. And so if that's the mindset, then you don't view a sermon as some burdensome thing that you have to get done before Sunday, but you view it as communion with the triune God. You view it as part of your own sanctification, maturity, and growth in Christ. And when you do that, you just want to slow down because you don't want to miss anything. Hey, and welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 161. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and you're about to hear a conversation that I had with Dr. Dustin Benj, the provost and the lecturer at the Union School of Theology in Wales in the UK. He is originally from the US where he pastored uh, two churches, and uh, also he recently received his PhD in Biblical Spirituality and Church History from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He is a clear thinker. He is a great communicator. And in this conversation, we speak about the importance of application in our sermons, Uh, not just speaking and teaching the truth, but showing how it applies to the lives of our congregations and our hearers. We also have a conversation about mentoring young preachers and why we don't just want to leave people on their own when they feel a call to the ministry, but come alongside to help and to encourage. And then finally, at the end, there's a little bit about stationery, and we kind of geek out about our favorite notebooks and the importance of using uh, paper and pen when possible. So I really enjoyed this conversation, and I have a feeling that you will too. So I'm going to chime in at the end with some uh, final thoughts and a teaser for our next episode. So I hope that this and all that we do here at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's Word. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective podcast. Uh, this this morning, I'm joined by Dr. Dustin Benj. Hi, Dustin. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Mike. Very uh, very nice to be with you. Yeah, I'm 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 really glad. I'm been looking forward to this conversation for for a long time. I guess maybe should I disclose to the audience that this is the second time that I've had the privilege of interviewing you. <laughs> Yes, um, I was very pleased to uh, talk with you. My goodness, how has it been two years ago I, now? I think so. Yes, maybe two years ago. A lot of life has happened in between that. Um, a lot of really great things, uh, a lot of things that perhaps we wished had not happened. But here we are again, and and so it's it's good to join you again. Yeah, so... so- I, I got to interview Dustin, yeah, two years ago in person. Uh, he was visiting the city of Cork, where, where I live, uh, lecturing at uh, Munster Bible College. And I sat in on some of his lectures and then was able to, to schedule an interview. We had a great chat. And uh, then at the end, I promptly uh, deleted the file. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I'm sorry that the world didn't get to hear this, but uh, thank you for giving me a second chance. 
Well, absolutely. Hopefully I can be as pithy and intellectually stimulating as last time. <laughs> yeah. And try to act surprised at my questions. Okay. Oh, be like, I will. Oh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, the script hasn't changed too much uh, over the past two years. Same, same couple of questions, which transitions into that, that first question. Um, so, so Dustin, when was your first, uh, first sermon? When did you preach for the first time? Well, Mike, I've I've had to go back in in memory and and think about that. Um, my first sermon was around twenty five years ago or so. Um, wow, and you're not that old. Yeah, I'm not that old. I I I, I actually turn forty this year, um, and that just kind of is like fingernails on a chalkboard. Uh, just to, having said it, but nevertheless. Um, the Lord called me at a, at a very young age to preach. I had dealt with a calling to ministry for actually probably six months or more, um, just actually questioning, God, I'm, I'm too young, I'm too inexperienced, why in the world would you call me? I spoke with our pastor on a number of occasions, some other men in the church, and they just encouraged me to look at Paul's words to Timothy. Timothy, of course, being a very young man, uh, when he himself entered ministry, Paul's encouragement to him to not forsake his youth or not deny his youth. And so having been encouraged from that, as well as Jeremiah, who was extremely young, um, I announced a calling to preach in in front of my church and uh, just received a great welcome to do that and desiring to come under their accountability and their encouragement and their prayers. And so after having announced that calling to preach, um, that the Lord was dealing with me and that I wanted to go into full-time vocational ministry, it was about probably two months later that my pastor came to me and said, Dustin, we want you to preach. And it was not during a normal Lord's Day service, but our church uh, on a particular Christmas was doing some ministry at a local children's home. Uh, This local children's home was welcoming in our church to bring presents and gifts for the children. All their families were going to be there. Um, It it was just an outreach ministry that I was going to speak at. Um, But once I arrived, there was probably 200 people there. Um, I had no idea what I was getting into. I was about 15 years old, um, had never really done public speaking at all, had no training, had no background, had no idea how to prepare a sermon, what to put together, what to say. I only had examples of what I had listened to. So I put together a sermon, um, and I recall the name of that sermon was Three Reasons That Jesus Came. Uh, three reasons that Jesus was born. So it was quite topical, um, which was perfectly fine. I have no problem with topical preaching in that regard. Um, I did not take a particular text and unpack that text at that point. Just to be honest, I probably had never heard of what we would call expository preaching. So I just went through basically three points uh, as easily as I could. I received some feedback. My parents were there. I was so nervous. I just remember it. It it was just so excruciating for me. I probably said some things that 
I have since prayed that the Lord would wipe from people's minds. Um, but yes, that that was the very first time that I preached. Man, what a and what a, a baptism by fire! Uh, were you expecting? 200 that sounded like there was more people there that you were than you were No there on. was a lot more there than I was expecting uh, of yeah. course if you were invited to come on Sunday morning during a Lord's Day service um, I would have perhaps expected that many, but uh, because that was the number that attended our church. But in this particular context, I was expecting a very small group, possibly children. Yeah. It was really geared toward children. I was a child myself, if you yeah. will. Yeah. So um, when we arrived on the scene, um, and all the parents were there and families were there and extended families were there. Lots of lost people were there, lots of unbelievers who were unchurched. And so that just really made me extremely nervous. But the Lord was very kind and very gracious and uh, and got me through it at 15 years old. Wow. Well, I have a couple of questions about that. Um, you you said the phrase that you announced a call to preach, and you, you said it twice. Like that's in my in my tradition or in my church upbringing. I'm I'm kind of unfamiliar with that. Um, what does that What does that mean? How did that work out? Well, just just simply the recognition that. Um, I had been called to preach that God was dealing with my heart, that there was a passion and a desire, and as Paul put it, uh, that there was a passionate aspiration to do this. There was a tugging on the heart, if you will. There was no tingly feeling or anything of that nature, as as one sometimes thinks. But um, no quiver in the liver. No, no quiver. No, no nervousness. Wet, sweaty palms. You know, nothing of that nature. But just a wrecking, a simple, easy recognition that that the Lord was calling me to open his word and to teach that word. I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know the context of that. I didn't know the future and what the future held in that regard. Um, So after speaking with my pastor, he was just simply encouraging me to come before the church and to put myself under the submission of the church, to uh, ask them to pray for me, uh, have some accountability there, just the simple recognition that, hey, here's this young man among us, and God is dealing with him to become a pastor and a preacher. Uh, yeah, I, I love that. That that sounds like a really healthy way that takes it beyond just a a personal notion and and then involving and asking people to 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 pray for you. And and then kind of my next question, so that first sermon, like were you like you were prayed for by the church? Um did did anyone like help you construct that sermon? Was there any coaching that went alongside, or was it just well, you've 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 grown up under good preaching, so I expect you to be able to to put together a sermon? Well, honestly, there was uh, a little bit of both. Uh, perhaps I do remember our pastor wanting to see the the notes that I wrote down. Uh, he encouraged me to look at certain books and and certain resources, uh, lexicons and concordances and various other things. I I didn't really know how to use a lot of those. Um, I've, I learned quite quickly. I had been reading for some time various commentaries. 
Um, so he he did instruct me in that regard, uh, but I did have quite a good example from him Sunday after Sunday, um, you know, through his teaching uh, at the church as well as his um, normal expository ministry in our church. So I did have a good example. I did know how to construct or at least put together as it were, three points and a poem. Um, that that was kind of the idea. Yeah. And then afterward, after I preached, there was a follow up conversation of of you know how did this go? What what did you think went well? What did you think did not go well? Uh, so there was some coaching. Now as as I continue continued on in ministry, there seemed to be less coaching. So in essence, it wasn't until I entered college and then started reading some of um, some of my own things, looking in certain areas for how to preach, how to develop a sermon, how to do proper expositional study. So I really, I really educated myself on how to develop a sermon. Okay, so so kind of helps at the beginning. And then left to grow independently. Yes, afterwards. yes, yes. There were some things that happened at our church uh, that I won't mention here, but it it eventually took that particular pastor kind of out of my life, and so um, there there was some just devastating things that happened in the leadership of the church, and so that that caused them to go in a different direction and me kind of be left by myself. So I had no real mentor at that time. Now, since then, of course, I've had people, uh, older men, take me under their wing and show me things and, and give me advice, uh, of which I've greatly, uh, greatly been encouraged by. Okay, um, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, they say there's there's no there's no hurt like church hurt. So I'm, Absolutely. I'm well, glad you that, made it through. Yes, that hurt our church and uh, and that particular pastor and his family. But e- even during that time, um, we we had a, a a past well not a pastor but a preacher in our church who was an evangelist, a missionary, um, who really took me under his wing. He had been a family friend for many years. I went on a number of uh, international mission trips with him where I had opportunities to preach. He really coached me and helped me in place of that particular pastor. So the Lord provides. Um, He's not going to leave us empty or void of, of any help if he calls us to preach. He thoroughly equips us to do so. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe a final question before we move on to the next thing, but do you think it's a, uh, this is a very, very black and white. I'm sure there's all kinds of, of uh, gradients between it, but do you think it was a good thing that at 15, you already were in the pulpit and, and preaching with some regularity at 15? Well, um, probably in that first year of, of ministry, if you will, um, preaching ministry, I may have preached maybe 15 times total in that one year. Um, as a young man, what what's quite interesting about being called into ministry as a young man is everyone automatically assumes that you're going to go straight into youth ministry because you're a youth. 
I had no desire to go into youth ministry. However, the Lord opened many doors at the early onset of ministry for me to speak in youth contexts. So I was invited to a number of youth groups in the local community, as well as surrounding areas, um, youth meetings, uh, youth camps, various things of that nature. So I really cut my teeth on young people who were just like me, which was quite nerve-wracking in and of itself as you're speaking to your own peers. Um, but there are some good things. I, I I don't really recognize anything that I would redo or do differently, if you will. I think it was a good thing that, that the Lord called me and I immediately stepped out and began preaching at that age. Now, of course, there are many things I wish I could take back or withdraw that I said, um, doctrinal things that were incorrect. And, and so I think that's why it's so necessary for someone young in ministry to have a really great mentor over them, helping them, looking at their doctrine, planting sound doctrine into their hearts. And some of that I simply did not have, uh, which was quite devastating. Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. My, my next question actually dovetails perfectly into that. So, like, I, you know, thank the Lord that that you've gotten these older mentors, and you you mentioned that one, the former missionary, and there's been others, obviously. But but how have they helped you to to grow, to take you from that 15 year old to a more you know, mature, an almost 40 year old. Um, now, um, but like, thank you for that reminder. There's Mark. been almost, almost there's been, there's been growth. And, and essentially the question is like, what, what role did those mentors play in your growth? And then I'd love to hear even some of those actual changes, but, but at the Expositors Collective, like we're really, we emphasize these like preaching mentorships. So it'd be valuable to hear about the, the role that mentors played in your preaching development. Well, quite sadly, I would have to say that I had very little pastoral mentorship. Um, in the context that I grew up in, in Kentucky, it, it's thought in many churches that um, training, mentorship, um, even seminary is something that perhaps you should not do, that if God calls you to preach, He will equip you to preach there's very little study, very little um, investigation into the text that uh, preaching is very different than what how you and I would define it. And so it wasn't until I entered college, uh, I went to a um, Kentucky Baptist Convention college, uh, Bible college, as it were, in uh, southeastern Kentucky, fully accredited. I did a BA uh, in, in arts there. Um, and I had a tremendous biblical education. So straight out of high school, straight into college, I did eight year or excuse me, eight Old Testament classes, seven New Testament classes, in-depth systematic theology, church history. And it wasn't until college and that context that I began to be mentored by professors and others at the school, in regard to helping me preach. Um, and so it was really, really backwards how I learned to preach. I did not learn to preach by learning to preach. I learned to preach by, by shoring up my education in Scripture, 
systematics, doctrine, church history, and it was through that education then applied to preaching that helped me mature into a better preacher. Okay, yeah. And, okay, so that's that's a, a good glimpse into it, and yeah, the order sounds a little bit uh, No, the order was completely opposite. Uh, the, the order was completely opposite of what it should have been from pastors instilling into my life. I would never encourage pastors to ignore a young person in their congregation who who has an aspiration to preach. That's not what I would advocate at all. I would advocate the complete opposite, but that was just my particular context. Um, which the Lord used greatly, and I matured, and um, I'm still maturing, still growing, still learning. Uh, but the the Lord used that in my life, not only to learn what to do, but also to learn what not to do. If a young person came to me, uh, sure. if I was their pastor, and they said, "God is calling me to preach." Yeah, yeah. Well, we, you know, at Expositors Collective, this is like aimed at like younger or newer Bible teachers. But I also know the podcast gets listened to a lot of uh, people that aren't as young or or new. So thank you for kind of emphasizing both of those things, like what what the younger you could have used, and then also kind of a, a bit of a, a chide towards those that would ignore the youth, uh, that upcoming next generation of teachers and preachers. And yeah, and young people do make mistakes, and you know, they're theology isn't right all the way. And so um, rather than leave them on their own to go to college and to figure it out eventually, uh, maybe to help people when they're a bit younger would be a, a valuable oh thing. Oh my goodness. I mean, if if a young person came to me now and I was their pastor, how differently I would do things. But because of my own personal experience, I would do those things differently because that's the way I would personally want to be treated. That's the way I would want to be mentored. And since that was completely absent from my own life and my own experience, it's just all the more realization that we need to be very careful and cognizant as pastors uh, and preachers to take young people under our wing, to mentor them, to encourage them, to regularly meet with them, to um, point them to good books and theology and at, at 15 years old, 16, 17 years old, I had no idea, you know, all the nuances of systematic theology and how that integrated itself into the exposition of Scripture and and that redemptive thread that draws Scripture and how to exposit a text and, and look at a text. I had no idea how to do any of that. Now, eventually I learned, but how necessary it is to get it right at the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, amen. So you talked about how there was older men that took you under your wing and you kind of learned from them. I, I also, I happen to know that you haven't just been learning from like the, the older men in your life, but also like learning from like the Puritans, for, for example. And here's an awkward transition. Uh, your, your recent book um, on the American Puritans um, is, you know, kind of looking at like the, the, the lives, the testimony of, I believe, like nine um, of these, uh, you know, uh, preachers and Christians uh, from the past. Um, how how has your preaching and Christian development been influenced by by the Puritans? Well, probably halfway through college, I became interested in church history, studying church history, reading church history. 
Um, I, I really knew quite early on that that was the direction that I wanted to go in. I first discovered in high school uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, preaching Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Every high school literature class had to read that sermon as a example of quite negatively, in fact, an example of colonial American preaching, which is not an example at all of Edwards' typical preaching style. However, it was at that time, after being introduced to Edwards, that in college, being reintroduced to Edwards, I began reading through his sermons, some great, great sermons. Now, depending on when you place Edwards in history, he is for some outside of the Puritan era, for some he's inside the Puritan era. Um, But Edwards opened a door for me into Puritan theology, reading other Puritans, John Owen, Thomas Manton, Thomas Goodwin, um, Thomas Watson. It seems like they're all either named Thomas or John. Um, But so many Puritans that that I began reading and learning from. And I, I started with their sermons because their theology is deep and thick and and weighty. Of course, I've gotten to that theology since then, but their sermons was the context of sitting in a pew like their normal parishioners would do, and it was as if I was hearing them preach. Um, I'm not really sure what I could say that that I've learned um, in regard to exposition from the Puritans because the Puritans had quite a different style of preaching. Um, there would be an introduction, there would be a very clearly stated doctrine that they wanted to cover in that sermon. Sometimes it wasn't expositional, even though they did exposit texts. Then they would um, begin in a very weighty doctrinal presentation of unpacking the text, if you will, turning it over, examining every facet. And then at the very end, they went into a very long application of that doctrine. So where we would encourage, yes, you need to sprinkle doctrine and exposition throughout, but you should also sprinkle application throughout. The Puritans compartmentalize that in their preaching. So I did not want to learn that, but if I could say I learned anything from the Puritans, it was I learned how to apply. The Puritans are masters of taking a text and unpacking it in such a way and then applying it to the Christian life, applying it to the context of their hearers. If anything, Mike, I think that sometimes expositors are deficient in application. I know in examining my own sermons, sometimes I look back and I think, wow, I did not apply that text at all. Sometimes we are, you know, us good Reformed folk just expect the Holy Spirit to take what we say and then apply it to people's hearts, which he does that, but we're also called to do that application as well. So from the Puritans, I learned basically how to apply Scripture. Man, and thank you for addressing the uh, the the deficiency within the expository preaching movement of which we're both enthusiastic participants in. Yeah, application sometimes does fall by the wayside, and I wonder is it sometimes is it with our the pericopes that we choose? You know, um, 
you know, maybe going through Ephesians or something, and the first three chapters are rather uh, doctrinaire and theological, and then the application comes at the end. Uh, is it that as someone preaches through those first half, they they don't come to those application points? Or what are some of the reasons that you think us expositors aren't that good at application or are prone to be weak in there? Well, I think um, from my own perspective and my own experience, I have been weak in application because almost unconsciously, Mike, I've, I've thought to myself, if I explain this text properly, if I unpack this text with authorial intent, if I'm saying actually what Paul said in that particular context— then it's quite unnecessary that I apply it yeah. because, again, there's something spiritual within me and my Reformed theology that says God is sovereign and he's going to take that text if it's unpacked correctly in its contextual beauty and he's going to apply that to people's hearts in their own context. Now, um, you know, I love to paint a picture when I'm preaching. So if if I'm preaching, for instance, Matthew 14, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus feeding uh, the five to 25,000 people that were there uh, in Galilee, I want to unpack that in such a way that the hearers, my hearers, actually are transported to that context and they can feel the breeze of the Sea of Galilee on their face and they smell the same smells and they hear Jesus saying these words. And so really to transport them to that context is what I want to do. And so sometimes, just to be honest, I forget to apply it. I'm so wrapped up in the beauty of the text that I just forget um, and then I get to the end of the sermon, and it seems like in the conclusion, we try to cram a lot of application really quickly. Um, if you're this way, then you need to do this, and you need to yeah. do this if you're this way, and remember this. And so through the years, I've really had to work on, am I applying this text? Is it is it applicable to my own heart first? And then if it's applicable to my own heart, which it always is because we're always preaching the text to ourselves first, then I can thus apply it to my hearers. Yeah. You know, um, you know, for, for years of my, my early years of preaching, the end of every sermon would be something like this. And, and now may the spirit of God apply this to our lives. Amen. (laughs) And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, he does. That is the work of the spirit, but yet the spirit calls preachers to even guide people into ways to apply it. And it's not, it's not like, hold on, Holy Spirit, I'll take it from here. It's that, okay, Holy Spirit, you've equipped me to, to preach the word. And that includes calling people to action and then even guiding in some of those actions. Well, we see that through the ministry and the preaching of Christ himself. He's constantly applying Old Testament texts and what he's preaching. Um, he's giving parables. He's telling stories. He's, he's getting into the context of the people and the hearts of the people. Now, of course, he's the master preacher, isn't he? He's our preeminent example. But I will say as well, we have so many, and I I think this is another danger, we have so many examples in front of us um, who read a text and then all they do is apply. 
There, there's no doctrine. There's no theology. There's no depth. There's no context. All they do is apply. And so I think those of us who are dedicated to expository preaching, we are so fearful of just applying the text that we under-apply the text. And so I don't, I don't want to give a self-help manual in the pulpit. That's not what preaching is. That's not what I believe preaching is. So fearing that danger of me doing so causes me to go in the opposite direction. So we have to constantly be aware that there is a very healthy balance that needs to be struck between doctrine, weighty, glorious matters of contextual expository preaching and heartfelt, spirit-led, soul-driven application to our hearers' minds and hearts. So Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones would call that experiential preaching. The Puritans would also call that experiential preaching. We're not only preaching to the head intellectually, but we're also preaching to the heart in, in regard to application. So that's what I learned from the Puritans and Lloyd-Jones and others to strike a very healthy balance between the mind and the heart. Yeah, Man, I wanted to like stand up and, and cheer. Like that is that's that's so exciting to to hear those things. Um, so uh, so in in the, like they had a really healthy grasp of this applying to people's lives. But you would say your your one maybe critique or your one thing that you think maybe wouldn't work here so well is backloading all the application at the end. So do you think that application should be kind of woven throughout the exposition? I think I think the application should be woven throughout the exposition. Something that I think the Puritans do that does really not work in our current modern context is as I said before, the compartmentalizing of their sermons. Okay. So the structure of the sermons would not always work in our context. Very heavy front-loaded doctrine and then beautiful application at the end. Mm -hmm. It would be my preference to weave a tapestry throughout of application and doctrine so that when I get to the end of the message, if they forgot the doctrine that I've said at the beginning, then it's quite hard to apply, isn't it, at the end? And so that that's one thing I'm not quite sure the Puritans... Um, that we should bring into our modern context. Now, it worked in their context because they were so logical and people's minds work that way in that context of learning that logic and argument was the way that we instruct. That was the way that um, uh, the Greek philosophers uh, actually did their Greek philosophy. Their, that, that's how Oxford taught. That's how Cambridge, where all these men were taught. That's how they, that, that's how they learned to properly articulate a doctrine or an argument was just logical argument between two parties. And so that that's what you see the, the Puritans do. So in their writings, that's why they give so many objections. If you're reading Edwards, he will give doctrine, and then he'll say, okay, there's 25 objections here that I'm going to answer. And he lists all these objections, and he gives answers. That's that logical mind working, that argument working. And so I just, I'm not quite sure that that works as well in our modern context. 
Yeah, well, thank you for that. Yeah, thoughtful uh, interaction with that. I know that you you respect the Puritans very much, and this is not coming from a place of, you know, criticism. But yeah. no, my goodness, the the Puritans have forgot more, Mike, than I will ever know, <laughs> and so I'm I'm not critiquing them at all. They they are master theologians, master expositors, master preachers. Um, I'm just simply saying that what perhaps worked in a 17th, 18th century context does not apply to our particular context. Yeah. And um, I'd love to speak with you about like your your kind of weekly rhythm moving on, but maybe to kind of put a capstone on this, maybe just to, to recommend to, to the listeners, uh, check out episode 155 with uh, Dr. Gavin Ortland. He has some incredible thoughts about application and different ways that we can bring application in to the different like kind of categories of, of people in our own, in our own church, obviously influenced by this kind of thing. But I think he does a good job of like putting, putting boots on the ground with this one. Um, okay. So, Dustin, <laughs> Sunday's coming. Uh, you're scheduled to preach. I don't know if you actually are this coming Sunday, but you know, if you are going to preach on a Sunday, what what do you do in the days leading up to uh, your your Sunday that you're preaching? I could really give two scenarios here. Um, as currently, I'm not a pastor in that I'm not in the same pulpit every Lord's Day. That causes me to study a little differently than if I were a pastor. So let, let me give more of a, a pastoral context of when I did serve uh, as a pastor for several years. Um, I was expositing a book, so I was going through a book verse by verse, and therefore every single Sunday that was coming up, I knew my next set of verses, so I was building off of the previous set of verses, if you will. If I go in, in my current context, if I'm invited to come and, and fill a pulpit now, uh, that's quite different because I have no context through which to continue a, a series in a book. But if I know the text that I'm preaching, if I know that next set of verses, then it begins on Monday for me. Um, if I came to Friday evening or even Saturday and did not have a sermon fully and completely prepared and ready, I would be so nervous I wouldn't know kind of how to handle myself. So I spend every single day of the week doing something for that particular sermon. So Monday, I will pick out the text and I'll begin to just get a big sheet of paper and just write down thoughts, just kind of regurgitate my thoughts, if you will, on a piece of paper about that text. Now, most of those thoughts never enter the sermon. Um, they're, they're just really key points for me, things that I'm looking at, things that I'm drawing, things that just pop into my mind as illustrations or other texts that I can draw in. Some things are wrong. My interpretation is often wrong uh, if I'm not looking at books and surrounded by things. But my yeah, God, I hopefully want— Hopefully you catch it by before, before Sunday. Yes, it will be caught, but— I want to have a spiritual time, if you will, with the text myself. I'm bathing it in prayer. I'm asking the Lord to show me things. I'm asking the Lord to unveil things to me that I've not seen before. Um, so, so that's really what's going on there on that Monday. Then Tuesday, I'm, I'm getting into um, some word studies about the text itself, 
looking at some original language, really dissecting the text, trying to see if there's a natural outline that flows out of the text. I don't want to force an outline. I don't want to force three points that are... um, you know, some analogy or whatever. I I simply want the text to speak for itself. And so that's what I'm basically doing on Tuesday. And then I have, if for instance, I'm preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, I may have 13, 15 commentaries that I'm looking at. So I photocopy all that material for that text. I take it everywhere in a folder. I'm highlighting, I'm looking at things. And then I begin, you know, Wednesday afternoon to Thursday, a rough draft of that sermon, just writing out every single thing that I've learned. I'm I'm beginning at that point to preach it in my head. Um, I'm doing proper exegetical work and hermeneutical work and all of that throughout the week. And then by, you know, Friday, I have a very workable sermon. Uh, as a pastor, you may be doing a, a midweek service as well as a Sunday night service. So you're juggling three different things that you're having to do. And so everybody's timetable just looks differently. But that's kind of the steps that I take. And then on Friday afternoon, I read over the text. I actually read over it audibly, so I'm not preaching it. In other words, I don't practice preaching it, but I read it audibly just so my ears will hear what my hearers hear because the audible word is different than reading it. Uh, I'm, I write out a manuscript and so um, it's all audible, and and therefore I can hear things that may not sound just right, and I make edits and tweaks and and all the rest of it. Saturday, I try to lay it aside until Saturday night just to refresh myself and, and have a different mindset. And then on Sunday, uh, I come back very early of that morning and then read the text again, read the sermon probably twice uh, before I preach it on that on that Lord's Day. Well, thanks for, yeah. And, and for all of these things, it's not your whole day. So let's say for Tuesday, it's word study day. That's not the whole day, I assume. That's part of the day in the midst of no, other responsibilities. No, that, that's part of the day. Yeah. I mean, everyone has pastoral responsibilities. Yeah, you have yeah, visitation, yeah. counseling, things of that nature. But there are large chunks of time, six, seven hours that I'm dedicating, um, getting up early of the morning before anyone else gets up. There there are large chunks of time. I can't do something for 30 minutes and then go away for three hours and come back to it. So I need, I need large chunks of time that are specifically set aside for sermon preparation. Hmm. Well, something that I'd love to, to ask you about, um, you mentioned that you have, you know, photocopies of commentaries that you bring around with you. You have a, a piece of paper and you're writing things. Um, so much of this sounds like very like tactile and like paper oriented. Old school. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's, what is the value? Uh, because obviously you're a, you're a tech savvy guy, but what's the value of like paper and pens? Like why, why do you use those when they're like so inefficient compared to uh, your iPad or this or that? 
Yeah, that that that's a good that's a good thought. If if I'm traveling, I will put um, all the commentary material that I copy uh, into PDFs, and I'll put it on my iPad so I have it all there together. Um, I I'm so tech savvy that I normally preach from an iPad. I do all the study on paper and pen, but then I always transfer it to iPad and and preach from that just because it's so much easier. Um, I don't know, Mike, probably because that's the way I've always done it. Yeah. Uh, from the very beginning, I've, I don't use, I, I've never used big biblical programs like Logos and other things. I hear they are wonderful. I hear they would make life much easier, but I just tend to go slower because as I go slower, I, I'm not wanting to go fast. Let me just say that. I'm not wanting to go fast because if I go fast, I'm afraid that I miss something. If I go slow, then I have the opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to me through the text in such a way that I'm slowly writing down. Writing by hand makes me slow down rather than typing. I'm not just wanting to get the sermon out of the way, but I want to live inside that sermon. So if I have books around me, if I have photocopies around me, if I have a folder of material, uh, plus it's just good to keep in a file somewhere. Um, and I don't know, it, it just slows me down and, and it helps me absorb uh, a little more of the text than, than using technology would. Wow. Well, I ask that as somebody who's like super into paper products and I love stationery so much. <laughs> and, and when I was, yeah, in, in your class, uh, at Munster, uh, Bible college, I think towards the end, you were maybe just like giving some, uh, encouragement towards like just various spiritual disciplines, I think. And you were talking about, uh, you know, morning prayer. And then you mentioned journaling. And then you said that you, you specifically use uh, like term, 1917 journals. Yep, that's my and, favorite. And and I shot up because because I use them. <laughs> and I was like, no way. You have it there? Yeah, yep. here's here's mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, they are so good. And um, I think you said that, you know, because they they absorb the ink from a fountain pen. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, yes, it's true, it's true. <laughs> um, so I, I I wanted to to get some stationary talk uh, <laughs> in here as well. Well, the you know, the Notebooks and and fountain pens and all of that. Thankfully, I've been so encouraged that they've made a comeback in the past several years. Uh, guys just really love notebooks and they and they really love to write things down. I would challenge anyone who's preparing a sermon do it by hand and see see how much that transforms your study. I promise, as you slow down, you will see things in the text that perhaps you would not have seen otherwise. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I um. I have I have Lagos. I barely use it. It just slows my computer down because it's giant. It's this giant program. Yeah, and I I I I I barely use it. I I should use it more. However, yeah. I don't. But like you know, stuff kind of pops up, and this is I'm not trying to fault Lagos or anything like that. But like it says, like you know, like take the pain out of sermon prep. You know, yeah. or it's yeah. like well, some of us like the pain <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not about efficiency. It's about, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, like going to the bookshelf, standing in front of the bookshelf and just kind of looking and thinking and thinking, ah, and that book reminds you of something. You see the spine of a familiar book and it's not linked to the Sermon on the Mount, you know, but it reminds you of something. 
And I just think there's some wonderful tactile about that. Absolutely. I've often heard uh, MacArthur say that he enjoys the process of study actually more than the delivery. So he's studying for himself. He's studying for his own sanctification. So in other words, Mike, we, we as preachers, as expositors, should never study to prepare a sermon never study to prepare a sermon. We are studying to know God. We, we are studying to grow in Christ. We are studying to be matured in Christ. And so if that's the mindset, then you, you don't view a sermon as some burdensome thing that you have to get done before Sunday, yeah. but you view it as communion with the triune God. You view it as part of your own sanctification, maturity, and growth in Christ. And when you do that, you just want to slow down because you don't want to miss anything. Wow. Yeah, I yeah, wholeheartedly agree. And I think we'll we'll have to end it on there. I've gone a little bit even beyond the time that I that I said I would. Thank you for your, your extra time. Uh, would you want to, um, as we close, like, would you like to tell us about the, the Walking Worthy podcast? Um, where can someone get the American Puritans book? Uh, want to give you an opportunity to invite people towards that. Yeah, so American Puritans came out from um, Reformation Heritage Books. You can get it on Amazon. It's available in the UK on Amazon as well as the US. About uh, several months ago, I've, I've been thinking for some time about beginning a podcast. There's so many great podcasts out there in, in the evangelical Christian community, particularly podcasts just like this that do interviews and and speak with so many different people, and, and it's just really great that's not really the direction I wanted to go because I didn't want to build on somebody else's platform. Um, but I wanted to do something that would give less than 10-minute devotional, quick expository thoughts about a text, something that people can listen to on their way to work or as they're getting ready, fixing their coffee of the morning, and just receive something that perhaps they can meditate on the rest of the day. And so Walking Worthy is a podcast. We've done I've done about 10 episodes so far. I'm actually going through the Beatitudes one by one at the moment. Gave some introduction, then I started out going through the Beatitudes. And I just want to see how it goes. I've received some really good feedback. You can download or subscribe to Walking Worthy on a number of podcast platforms, as well as visit walkingworthypodcast.com. You can uh, get all the transcripts to the podcast there and listen to the latest episodes. Um, So yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And it's an outlet for me to give some expository thoughts. Yeah. And you know, uh, this, this pandemic... Sure started a lot of podcasts, didn't it? <laughs> um, and I also think it'd be it'd be remiss. I think every interview I've heard of yours, um, they usually start by talking about your Twitter account. I thought, you know, let's let's uh, save it to the end. Um, so you're, I think, you know, definitely one of the people that every Christian should follow on on Twitter. Um, uh, the link will be in the bio. Um, sorry, the link will be in the 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 show notes. But um, yeah, how how how's Twitter doing these days? <laughs> Well, Twitter's a beast in and of itself, isn't it? I mean, social media just over the past couple of years has really been transformed into 
a place that can be um, quite discouraging, vitriol and all the rest, slandering and all the rest. That's not really the approach I want to take, Mike, on my Twitter. Um, Now, I'm quite bold in some things that I say. I'm quite direct in some things that I say. Uh, I desire to be theological and doctrinal, biblical, take a stand on a number of things. Um, But I'm really just wanting to put truth out there. Just just blanket social media with biblical theological truth um, that it may encourage someone. I posted, for instance, yesterday uh, six points that we need to keep in mind from John Newton about how to deal with controversy and how applicable that is to our own day. So all those tweets are coming from reading and my own personal thoughts. Uh, I get on and post and usually leave and don't get back on. Um, it, it yeah, just depends. oftentimes if I if I click on one, there's usually arguments underneath. Yeah, <laughs> and yep. and you don't engage in those too much. Yeah, if if it's someone I know that has a legitimate question, or if there's some some sort of inquiry into what has been said, um, I'm very happy to engage with that person. It's not that I refuse to engage with anybody. It's that I refuse to engage with those that I know are on there only to give an argument. I'm not on social media to argue. Um, because those who just simply want to argue have no desire to learn. They're, they're not on there to learn. They're on there to argue and to present their own opinions. And so I just don't kind of feed that beast, if you will. So I try to stay out of the Twitter mud, as it were, and uh, just present doctrine and truth. And I've made some great friends on Twitter, um, some dear friends for life uh, on, on social media. So it's not all bad. <laughs> yeah, well, as I said, we'll have the, the link in the show notes for that as well as for the book and as well as for, for the podcast. Uh, yeah, Dustin, thanks very much. Um, would, would you mind uh, praying for us, praying for the, the preachers uh, that are listening? Absolutely. Let, let, let's, let's have prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful to you for your love to us in Christ The joy of knowing you, the joy of serving your church is beyond anything that we could ask, think, or imagine. Thank you for this particular podcast and the Expositors Collective and Mike's influence in in the world of expository preaching and the encouragement that so many have received from the interviews and conversations that have taken place. We pray, Father, for all those that are listening now as they perhaps are in the middle of their week, thinking about the Lord's Day coming, thinking about sermons that are to be prepared. Father, we pray for the illumination of your Spirit upon them. We pray for discipline in study. We pray, Father, that they would simply begin to understand that they're not studying to prepare a sermon, but they're studying to know you and to grow in your Word and to grow more like Christ. Father, we pray that your word would ring forth from pulpits around this world this coming Lord's Day, and you would move by your Spirit, drawing people to yourself, discipling believers, and causing your Spirit to extol and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are part of what you are doing, and we desire to glorify you in all things, for we ask all these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Dustin. Thank you, Mike. It's been a joy to be with you. Well, amen. Amen. Uh, Thank you again, uh, Dustin, for your time. 
and there'll be links to the Walking Worthy podcast as well as um, one of the places where you can find the American Puritans uh, book. Um, You can find those in the show notes of this episode. And uh, I want to leave you with just a bit of a clip from next week's episode. This coming Tuesday, there's a, a new show coming down the pipeline. And I had a great conversation with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. And it's just actually been like such a delight to be able to speak to these educated educators, <laughs> to, to be able to have these conversations with some real world-class scholars. So I'm going to leave you with a bit of next Tuesday's conversation and to say thank you so much for listening. And I hope that uh, this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. My good friend, Greg Goswell, I mentioned earlier, Hmm. you know, he always says it's amazing how much light the Bible sheds on commentaries. Yeah. Uh, And (laughs) it's this well-known joke, right, that we usually look at it the other way around, you know, how much light commentaries shed on the Bible. And so uh, certainly they're not a substitute, you know, for our own study of scripture. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if as a writer or as a preacher, if I essentially just, uh, compile, you know, a bunch of quotes from commentaries or put together a sermon, you know, just the way maybe some students write a research paper, (laughs) uh, just uh, calling quotes from different sources. Uh, It's not really them. It's not really me. I'm not really engaged, engaging with the text. And so I won't really have the authority and the authenticity and the credibility, the ethos to, to impact my audience because it's essentially all secondhand uh, knowledge. And so I think it's almost better to be maybe less uh, sophisticated, but mm. to be genuine, uh, you know, in, in sharing what we've discovered in God's word for ourselves. But, but that said, of course, um, every preacher uh, needs good commentaries. And so I would think there are certain series that specifically aim to equip pastors. Uh, And so uh, as opposed to more academic series for scholars, so I would say, you know, uh, series like the um, the Becknet or the Zechnet, you know, the Baker or Zondervan exegetical commentaries, uh, the the, the Expositor's Commentary, uh, now in a revised edition, uh, series like that, or now uh, Lexham's uh, evangelical exegetical commentary series, the EEC, those would all be uh, probably the most helpful because those are designed to actually illumine the text. Some commentaries give you a lot of knowledge and information, sure. but it's extraneous to you know the actual passage as a preacher. You would have to wade through a lot of really irrelevant information <laughs> to to get to the you know the relevant stuff. Yeah, so that yeah. would be maybe one tip I might have. And thank you so much for highlighting you know like as 
preachers preparing sermons, there's, they're not research papers. And so it's not a matter of like, how many quotes can you, can you pull in? And I, I, I noticed you speak about the importance of having your own voice, or there's got to be, it's coming through your own experience. Like to, to jump earlier, you spoke about how, you know, marriage and parenting and suffering has prepared you to be a better teacher and preacher. But if, if all you're doing is standing in the pulpit and, and, and compiling a list of, um, mm. connected quotes from other writers and it doesn't even matter who you are but like but god has equipped you to yeah. teach and preach yeah and you know i think that that confidence comes with time i think as a young preacher or you know teacher naturally you feel inadequate and you feel like who am i and there's other scholars or preachers who have so much more experience and insight mm. and you know you do you, you try to uh, draw from them that that's not wrong but I think over time hopefully we will grow in in confidence that you know we have something to say ourselves and that that God wants us to be ourselves you know he doesn't want us to to try to pretend to be somebody we're not or to just kind of uh, you know draw from from maybe some of the, the most popular preachers out there 